If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we have had the great privilege of being able to worship you a few times today. Again, we thank you, Father, that we have reason to be able to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and even cause us to think a great deal about the relationship that we have with you that was made possible by Christ and his sacrifice. We ask, Lord, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would use the word to speak to our hearts. The Father, that you would help us to have a very strong desire to want your word to change who we are. That we would have a strong desire to think biblically, that we would want to live biblically, that we would want to make our decisions based on what the scripture says, that, Father, we would approach all of life in a way that pleases you. And, Father, we know that if we seek to do this, not only that you will help us to accomplish this, but, Father, this will, again, bring to us great joy and happiness and enable us to live life in a way that we will find life to be extremely satisfying and meaningful. And so, Father, we thank you for Ephesians and, again, ask that you bless as we continue our trek through this epistle that Paul has written. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 4, beginning in 25, again Paul writes, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, the main thing that Paul is getting at as we work our way through these verses is that there is an expectation by Paul, there's an expectation from God that we become different people, that our behavior, our thinking, what we do, why we do what we do, uh, what we feel, the way we act spontaneously is all to be deeply impacted and affected by the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. That this new life that we have in him is, a, is truly a meaningful thing, but not a meaningful thing in the sense that it is, uh, causes us to have a, 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 maybe a deeper sense of affection for God, though we may have that, but it's not limited to that. Because again, we live in a culture, we live in a time where Often, a spiritual experience is kind of dumbed down to just that. 
Whatever it is that makes you feel a certain way, whatever makes you feel at peace, makes you feel maybe a sense of love, whatever it is that makes you um, really have maybe a deeper sense of affection and care for other people. And, and so if we have those things, which, again, we're not saying that's bad, but we've reduced spirituality and Christianity to only that. And here Paul is actually saying that it goes much deeper than that. The idea is, is that we, we make this choice, we purposely live in an intentional way that goes against the tide of how the rest of our culture lives. So we are those who simply stop lying. God does not command us to do things that we are unable to do. It is true that we need his help to do it and to be able to do it consistently. But remember that, there's, that we can never take any of these commands that God gives us and try to find something that excuses or justifies our not complying with what it says. So, when it comes to the anger one here, again, be angry and don't <laughs> sin. We then should understand as believers that we can never say, well, I know I get angry, but, because there's no but for the Christian. We can never say, no matter what the world says, no matter what science says, even though it oftentimes changes, we can't say that, well, genetically, I'm predisposed. No, we can't say that. It is true, some of these things will be more difficult for us than others, and some of the things will be more difficult for them than for us. So degree of difficulty is not what's being in question here, but there's never a reason, a true reason we can give for the wrong that we do, or continuing to do wrong, or remaining the same after we become Christians. And so the last couple of weeks that we were dealing with this, we talked about this individual who steals, and, and the What's laid out here by Paul is that this individual chooses not only to stop stealing, but there, he wants there to be a reflection that, that the heart has changed. And so we mentioned that there's kind of a principle that if you read some biblical counseling books, they'll talk about this. They, they'll say that it's this put-on, put-off kind of principle. And the idea is, is that when a thief stops stealing, that's a good thing, but that is not what pleases God. Because what God wants is more than that. What God wants is definitely that you stop stealing. He also wants you to work to provide for your own needs. But he also then wants you to be aware of those around you who have need. Then he wants you to take from what you've earned for yourself and meet some of those needs. So when, the, when, that, when, you've, come, when you've done that, you've come full circle, so to speak. That's what God wants from us. So when you get to verse 29... He starts talking about talking. And he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. So the first thing that we should take note of there is that we need to kind of be in control of how much we talk. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be silent. But you need to kind of, you know, get a grip. Uh, when it comes to our talking. And the goal that you see or the point is that he wants us to be individuals who we are aware of what we say and we are thinking about what we say. That's what he's getting at. Because again, we're Christians. And we don't want to do what comes natural until the heart completely changes. Then you can do what's natural. Proverbs 29.20 20 
says, do you see a man who speaks too soon? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And there's been times in my life where I've kind of heard like someone having a discussion and I'm ready to pounce in and I wait. And I keep listening and I'm like, I'm so glad I waited. Because <laughs> man, I would have really messed that up. So waiting's a very good thing. So I want to read to you verse 29 from the Amplified because the Amplified in this verse does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is amplify uh, what is being discussed here or being given to us by Paul. So verse 29 reads this way. Let no foul or polluting language, nor evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth. But only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others, as is fitting to the need and the occasion, that it may be a blessing and give grace, that's God's favor, to those who hear it. So he throws in a lot of words there and trying to help us to get a good grasp of what it means when he says, let no corrupt or let no unwholesome or no evil speech come out of your mouth. So this is more than just cussing. Anyone wants to say, you know, you shouldn't be cussing. Well, you probably shouldn't be, but this is, goes way beyond that. This is not just that. This is this is about everything that we say. The word that's used there by Paul, which is translated corrupt or unwholesome, means to cause, to decay, to putrefy. Um, it's a word that was often used to describe rotting fish. Um, so it, it describes the putri- putrefying process, something that would be disgusting, something that is perishing. We might use the word rank or foul, or putrid, or worthless. All those, all those words apply. Uh, again, it was a word that was used to describe spoiled fish. Uh, if there are rotten grapes on the ground, or a crumbling stones in a wall. Uh, again, the idea relates to the process of decay. Uh, this word uh, was used uh, to, to talk about things that were unusable, or things that were unfit. It describes things that would then be harmful, uh, due to the fact that it's corrupt or it has a corrupting or a defiling influence. So again, this is not then just saying bad things or bad words. This goes beyond that because you can use, uh, you can speak in a corrupt manner where you may not necessarily be speaking negative like about a person. You may not be cutting someone down. It definitely involves that, but this goes beyond that. And hopefully we'll be able to get a, get a handle on that as we kind of go through. There's a couple of things that I want to point out that I think will be helpful in helping us to understand and grasp uh, the totality of what Paul is talking about. But Paul is basically presents a picture of that which is repugnant. Um, he's talking again about what individuals were like when they were pagans uh, and of rotten speech and you know the kinds of things that they would just kind of do on a regular basis. If uh, This is not necessarily an unusual thing. For, for some believers, the longer that we're Christians the fewer non-believers that we know at times uh, because we make new friends. And so we hang up more and more with Christians. And so we're not really with non-believers all that much. And even when non-believers get together, we're not always really surrounded by non-believers. It's just kind of, that's kind of how it works. It's not a bad thing, but that's just how it is. But I remember, uh, I won't tell you the names, but you know, I've been coaching football, high school football for a long time. And when I coached in Hawaii, um, the head football coach was a Mormon, so he, he didn't cuss. Um, and so they were, everyone was fairly respectful in the way they spoke. 
And then when I came to uh, Georgia, I've been coaching at Calvary. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all Christians there, because they're not. But, you know, the coaches were at least, most of them trying to act Christian. So, you know, you kind of, you know, I've been in this atmosphere where you're coaching in four-letter words just aren't floating around. Well, through a bunch of different circumstances, I ended up coaching at Country Day for two years. I, uh, I don't get shocked very often. I was just surprised how many ways certain words could be used. Um, I'd, oh, I'd been around it before, but I'd, I'd kind of been disconnected, even in the jail, uh, where, the, you know, when I was the chaplain, the inmates sometimes would at least cuss less uh, when I was there. And then in the dormitory where I taught every day, I mean, we didn't even tolerate that. You just, you, you couldn't speak that way. And so I was always in atmospheres where that just wasn't used that much. And then when you're in professional meetings with officers and things, you know, they don't cuss, that, that you don't communicate that way. Man, I went there, and it was, it was unbelievable. In fact, even other unbelievers said it was bad. And uh, so the, the coaching staff, I guess, they excluded me from this one, but the coaching staff had been scolded by the, uh, I guess, the headmaster at Country Day because it was just out of control. And so they, they put a jar in the coach's office, and basically if you said some words, you had to put some money in. And then I guess at the end of a month, Whoever cussed the least got the money. I said, can I play? <laughs> and they said, no, <laughs> you can't. Uh, but the point is, is that it's, it's unbelievable. And then when you hear, if you, if you get around non-believers alike, hopefully it's very different than what it is with believers. The way they talk about each other and the way people talk to each other, it's, man, it's astounding. I mean, it really is. Uh, and no wonder people are getting in fights all the time. And the way people, I mean, it's just incredible. So the thing is, is that uh, we need to make sure that, that we are not like that. We need to make sure that, that we're not giving in to that. And if you're around a lot, you, you can. You, you Normally at first you become desensitized to it. To you're not really surprised anymore, which, you know, you get desensitized, you get desensitized. But the next thing is you begin to usually yourself, and that's, that's usually indicative of another, I think, of another problem. I don't think that if you're around people who cuss a lot, it always means you will cuss a lot, because if you're walking with the Lord the way you, way you ought to, that's not going to happen. Okay, I don't, I just, I don't think it will, um, uh, because uh, we'll be able to resist all of that. However, we do need to be very aware of the way we talk uh, and the way we talk to people. We need to make sure that when we speak that we are not uh, corrupting them. That's really the idea. We don't want to corrupt them. I, I don't want to corrupt their view of God. I don't want to corrupt their view of other people. I don't want to corrupt their view of life. I don't want to, whatever it is, I don't want to corrupt them. I don't, I don't want to be the corrupting influence on them. Uh, I, I want to make sure that, that that's not what I'm doing. That I, I want to be able to speak in such a way that I can be helpful, even if it's a non-believer. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly drop and get saved at that moment. But, but I, I want to, to be different. I want to try to uh, even help them uh, if I can. And you can be very creative. There's a lot of things you can do, especially if you work with non-believers. Uh, I had opportunities in the jail at times to try to find creative ways to help people. Uh, it's very common for people in the South to use Jesus Christ as a cuss word. You know, there's something that happened, they'll go and they'll say his name. It's just crazy. Um, and so what I did one time 
I was going down the hallway and there was a group of officers and somebody was, you know, Jesus Christ, and they were doing all this stuff. And so I just kind of stopped. And then it got real quiet. Chaplain? I go, uh, I didn't hear anyone say amen. I thought you guys were praying. I heard Jesus Christ. All of them looked at the other person. <laughs> and the lady went, what? She goes, I didn't know you were there. I go, I'm not the one who'd be offended. That would be God. She left. She said, oh, I got to go. <laughs> and the others laughed. But the point is, is that even when it comes to that, I do think that even as Christians, I don't, I'm not so sure that we should always try to get people to stop cussing around us. Because that's not the issue. The issue is the heart. If they stop cussing around you, that could be good. But if that's all that's accomplished, if all that happens is they stop cussing when they're around you, then we haven't accomplished anything. And I don't want them necessarily to always be guarded when, they, when they're around me. Now, that doesn't mean that I want them just to fly off the handle all the time. I don't, I don't want that. But I don't want them to only think of me as somehow being a language cop. That's, that's not what I want our relationship to be. So, you know, we have to think about this and how God wants us to handle this. So Paul then, in this, he's condemning any use of the mouth that would be morally unhealthy. So whether we are saying things that suggest impure thoughts, maybe light views of sin, irreverence towards God, or maybe trifling with serious things, that does definitely include profanity and obscenity, as well as careless or light speech, uh, whether we are profaning things that are religious or sacred, sacred concepts, anything that might result in the nullification of maybe sacred ideas that's conveyed by language. Um, uh, you know, language is a very powerful tool. And so we want to we think in those terms. Warren Wiersbe says this about the believer. He says, We expect a change in the speech when a person becomes a Christian. It is interesting to trace the word mouth through Romans and see how Christ makes a difference in a man's speech. The sinner's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. When he trusts Christ, he gladly confesses with his mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. As a condemned sinner, his mouth is stopped before the throne of God. But as a believer, his mouth is open to praise, to praise God. Change the heart and you change the speech. Paul certainly knew the difference, for when he was an unsaved rabbi, he was breathing threats and murder. But when he trusted Christ, a change took place. And those who were his victims then said, look, behold, he is praying. And so the idea is that, there, that, that the speech reflects a change of heart. So what we need to work on, I think, because you know sometimes we talk to our kids and we want our kids to kind of clean up their speech. It's not so much about trying to control your mouth. You want to control your mouth. That's not a bad thing. But we want the heart to be different. See, if the heart changes, you don't have to worry so much about what comes out of your mouth. That's the thing. The discipline part, in a sense, becomes almost easy because it's not in here. So that's why when, you know, when you're with someone and they, maybe they hit their, you know, how people say, they hit their thumb with a hammer and they let loose some words. Well, okay. Hitting the thumb with a hammer did not make you cuss. Your heart did. Because you could have said other things. You could have just screamed. You could have just yelled. 
But if you're saying certain words, it's not because you hit your thumb. It's because of this. So that's why we really don't slip. I mean, we, we do. It's kind of an indication that we're maybe kind of phony because we're trying to control our speech where we are. Well, when I'm at church, I speak this way. When I'm at home, I speak this way. When I'm at, when I'm at work, you know, whatever. So we, we need to be approach life differently as Christians and think about these things. In Matthew 7, beginning of verse 17, it reads this way. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the bottom line then is this, is that what we say comes from within us, period. It's not because of our environment. Our environment can nurture certain things. However, what we say, the way we say things, comes from our heart. Verse 29, uh, again, says, let, uh, back in Ephesians, let's, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. The word but highlights a dramatic, contrasting thought. The words that should, that should proceed from my mouth should edify, should build up, should encourage, not tear down, not discourage. In fact, uh, turn to Matthew 12 for a moment. I want to point out what Jesus says about the mouth because there's, there's a phrase he uses or a word he uses that I think is very helpful in helping us to get a full picture of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. So Matthew 12, looking at verse 36, Jesus says, And I say to you that every careless, and the Greek word is argos there, it's, it's, uh, uh, it means basically uh, the, the literal meaning is not working words. It's an odd definition, but that's what it means. So I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. The, uh, the word careless sometimes is translated idle. It means unprofitable. That's what, when it says uh, that the word means not working words, it means it's unprofitable. Uh, again, some translations, the New America Standard, um, the uh, NIV, they use the word careless. Again, some use the word idle. But the word that's used there for word, you know, most people are familiar that in the Greek language, at least in biblical Greek language, there's two main words for word. There's logos. Uh, that's where we get our word logic from. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the logos of God. Uh, the word logos uh, usually suggests a reasoned statement. Then there's the word rhema, and rhema would be more of a casual utterance. So the idea is this careless, casual utterance. So Jesus says, I say to you that every careless, careless casual utterance that men shall speak, they're going to have to give an account for. So that's what he's getting at here. All right, so this is not just our prepared speeches and, and lessons that we give and that kind of thing. He's talking about our everyday speech. So something that's careless or a thoughtless utterance. Uh, someone may say, well, I didn't mean what I said. I was just kidding anyway or don't take things so seriously. And I understand there's a place and time where we can joke with each other. Nothing wrong with that. We, there, there's times we can do that. But again, we don't want to overlook this idea where sometimes we use these phrases just to kind of get out of a situation where we were, we were careless and we end up hurting someone, maybe someone that we love dearly. And the idea is not for us to apologize for saying that. What he wants us to do is to not say it. And to not say it is not just being more disciplined. To not say it is to have a different heart. 
And that's what God gives us is a different heart. We get a different heart by practicing the Christian disciplines, which is reading the word, praying, and fellowshipping with other believers, uh, and taking these things very seriously. So Jesus warns us that he takes careless or idle words very, very seriously. So again, this is not some attempt to be some kind of a cosmic killjoy so that we're unable to engage in spontaneous conversations. We absolutely can. But there's a difference. There was, uh, there was an event that happened at the jail once when I was teaching. When I say event, it wasn't like a riot or anything. Uh, but I was teaching. We were just kind of going back and forth with the inmates. And, and uh, I, I do not remember what, what we were talking about, but it was, it was fairly serious. And so then to kind of lighten the mood, um, I, I, I told them something that was pretty funny. And so we ended up kind of going back and forth for a while. And the, we, were just, I mean, we were just laughing and having a good time. And then um, toward the end, uh, when we got ready to pray, to, to finish up, one of the inmates, because um, I'd always let him ask questions, sometimes make statements, those kinds of things. And this guy stood up. He was probably 33. And uh, he'd been a believer for about three weeks. And he said, uh, um, I, he said, I experienced something today that I have never experienced in my life. And, you know, the Bible study wasn't all that profound that day. It was a lot of basic things. And uh, he paused and he said this. He said, today was the first time in my life that I laughed while I wasn't laughing at something dirty. He had never laughed. He said he could not remember ever laughing when it didn't involve something dirty until that moment. He said he, he, said he never thought about it before, but if you had asked him, he thought that was actually an impossibility. And he was blown away by that. So, so again, this is not some attempt for us to be these somber, monk-like figures, you know, who are always chanting and we're scolding anybody who smiles. All right, that's not what this is. But this does mean that when we speak, we are very careful. We take seriously the way that we use our mouths. Even in the heat of, a, in, of the moment, you know, when, the, when you're in an argument and you're angry, we are called into account by God for what we say. We, we cannot say, well, you don't understand, I was angry. That is not a reason, period. If your heart changes, no matter how angry you get, you will still speak differently. You may still yell. The veins in your neck may still pop out. But when, if you, as you're growing as a Christian, not only will the, the, what you say... You know, the four-letter words will disappear. The cutting remarks will disappear. The trying to find a way to hurt that person verbally disappears. Everything about that begin, will begin to change. It doesn't mean that we're not going to slip up from time to time, but there'll be less and less of that. Because even when we get angry, and even in the midst of an argument, we're not trying to hurt the person to win the argument. Because we're becoming different. We, I also believe this, that when others then may speak to us in ways that are very cutting before what didn't even bother us will bother us deeply. Now, I don't mean that you become a whiny crybaby and you run off to the corner because someone's hurt your feelings. But in other words, it's something that you you feel on the inside. You know, there's that slash. But you don't don't come against the person. Why? Because you're in control of your mouth because you love God. So you're not going to come back at them to try to get them back, or you don't come back and let them know what they did to you. You don't do that. But you become more sensitive. So you, you are more sensitive to being hurt, in a sense, but you can handle it. You're growing as a believer. 
And so there are things that we absorb as believers. We, I think we need to get back to that sometimes as Christians. We, you know, America, they always want to, you know, make somebody pay all the time, every time somebody's hurt, which is just insane. But, but that also means then that, that we are then very much in control of the things that we see and how we handle things. And so even in the heat of the moment, uh, and sometimes, and maybe it's often, but sometimes the Lord allows you to get in situations where the anger flares to show you either how far you've come or to let you know that you haven't come as far as you need to. So those are sanctifying moments that God will use. Um, and, uh, and so we need to pay attention to those things. Jesus, again, as I said, warns us that he takes these things seriously. And again, there's a good reason why. The, word, the words tend to indicate, when we, when we speak in a careless way or, or the w- ways we've been describing, it indicates, again, what's in our heart. And it indicates much more truthfully uh, what's in our heart than anything else. And so even when it comes to where we use the phrase sometimes, let's say if I'm arguing with Robert and then I say something just nasty to him just to kind of, you know, I cut him down. I, I may say to him, truthfully, I may apologize and say, I didn't mean that. And it is possible that the words I use, I didn't mean those exact words. However, I did intend to use my language as, as a verbal punch. That I did on purpose. So I, so I may have, if I had thought about it, not used those words. So in that sense, we can say, I didn't mean that. But on the other hand, I did mean it because I intended to hurt them. I intended to hurt him. So, you know, husband wife thing. We sometimes argue and we get really perturbed with the other person. And so sometimes we may say things and you don't necessarily mean exactly what that, whatever that phrase that you used, but you did intend to either put them in their place or you did intend to say something cutting so they would be quiet. And that's what we're talking about. All right? So I'm not excusing whatever it is that we said, but that intent that comes to our heart that must be different. You know, if I was to, well, let's say that I was asked for whatever reason, let's say I was asked to present a matter before, let's say, the city council. And whatever it is, it's, it's kind of important. And let's say that there's one or more people on the council that I don't really respect. I would still, if I'm working on my presentation, I'm going to work to prepare my case very thoughtfully. I would craft my words to present the best face possible. I would want to make a positive impact for whatever the topic may, may happen to be. But let's, let's suppose that I'm talking to a friend and they ask me about what I thought about maybe the committee or some people on the committee. And let's just say that uh, I was kind of in a careless mood. And so I was pretty flippant about some things that I said. Maybe I was being sarcastic or belittling or maybe very disrespectful. And let's just say that uh, in this scenario, those words are overheard, overheard and they have been given to whoever's in the committee and they ask me about it. Well, I could say whatever I want to say. Well, I didn't really mean it. I was just being this or being that. But it's going to have an impact. I, I said what I said. And we can't take those things back. Those words prove what's in our hearts. And we, we need to take that to heart. We need to really believe that's, that's what that, what's that means. But let me also give you another scenario uh, and I kind of touched on this this morning. We were talking about some things, about some things we sometimes say. And this kind of falls into this category as well, uh, as far as careless words or things that have a corrupting influence. And we definitely do not want to be in this arena. 
But let's just say that you're talking to, uh, to some people in a group. Maybe it's a group of friends. Golf course, fishing, whatever. You're, you're somewhere, gone to a ball game. And let's just say the, the, the topic of the Bible comes up or something spiritual comes up. And, you know, there's a mixed group of individuals. Some are believers, some aren't. Some go to church, some don't. And uh, let's just say that when the Bible comes up or someone starts talking about the Bible, you may say or indicate that you don't take everything that the Bible says seriously. Or you say, well, I don't really compare everything to what the Bible says. That's very careless. You are communicating more than you ever dreamed of. And that is extremely corrupting to the others. Remember that it is the will of God to use us as his ambassadors. He has designed life the way it is so that we can be a part of his work in the hearts and minds of other people. We don't know most of the time where other people are at in their life spiritually, both the believers and the non-believers. And there may be someone who's silent in that group who is on some precipice, and it's at a point to where maybe they're seriously considering what place does or should the Bible have in my life. And let's say, just for the sake of the conversation, of the guys you're talking to, you're the one who at least goes to church the most. So they're all going to assume you know the most. When you say, I don't take everything in the Bible real serious, you most likely have given that person a reason to dismiss the Bible. That's a bad thing. Now, sometimes people say, well, come on now. I mean, it it can't really be all like that. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's say that I decide to go to a football game, and let's say that you are very concerned about your 17-year-old son. Because your 17-year-old son is not really sure about whether or not he wants to, you know, Become a believer. He's resisting all of that. And so you're hoping that maybe he could spend some time with some other people, hear from other people besides the dad, what they think about the Bible. And I say, you know what? I got an extra ticket. And so I invite your son. And you're probably, this is great. And so we're going to a Georgia game. So that means we got four and a half hours in that car going up the beautiful drive of I-16. And so we are, so we're in the car, we're talking about all kinds of stuff. And let's say, which you're hoping it does, the Bible comes up. And let's say that I'm like some other preachers. And let's say he brings the fact that, well, you know, he doesn't believe everything in the Bible. And I say, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, I myself have a hard time with the story of Jonah and the whale. I mean, just, you know, that doesn't really affect our salvation. He says, well, but I'm not, you know, I, I, he's got some problems with the, with the flood. And, you know, and I said, well, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, there's some growing evidence that there really was a worldwide flood. But, man, don't sweat it. Why should he listen to anything I say about anything about the Bible? It really is an all or nothing kind of a thing. That's how we, pretty much how we present it. Those words are going to have a lot of impact on him. And I'm saying that just because I want to be buddy-buddy with your son. I want to be cool, which is why would a 59-year-old man want to be cool? But anyway, you know, it happens. You know, and so you know, I get in this weird thing where I want him to, to like me and all this weird stuff. And so I start saying these stupid things. 
And it happens. And so these careless things, I'm trying to say so I can kind of be cool, so we can get down to the real nitty-gritty. I'm just, I'm, I'm bearing the Bible. I'm bearing God. I'm giving this guy no reason to take anything seriously. If your son comes back from the game and you ask him, what did you talk about? And he starts telling you, he says, well, you know, I know, Dad, you told me that we need to believe everything in the Bible, but even the preacher says he didn't believe everything. You might be a little perturbed. You might want to call me, even though it's 1 o'clock in the morning, because you're bugged. I mean, that's going to have an impact. So when I say that we don't know the kind of impact, that it, there's truth in that. That's not to freak us out or you know, make everything to be super profound, but we just need to realize that there's truth in that. And there are times that we're, for whatever reason, we're the most knowledgeable or influential person in that group. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to suddenly you know, think that it's all on you and you have to have all these prepared speeches. It's none of that. We, we need to just share what is in our heart. But if we are not growing in Christ and spending time in the Word, you're going to mess it up. Because most of the time, what people really want to know is they want to know what you think. Because sometimes, you know, people say, well, I don't know if I can defend the Bible. I know the Bible says it's credible, and there's all, these, there's all this evidence that the Bible is true. And you can present all of that evidence. But most of the time, what, what people want to know is, but what do you think? And they're not looking for 19 scientific reasons why you should believe the Bible. They want to know if you believe it, and why do you believe the Bible? And that's, and that is, and that's what you want to share with them. And so I think that when he talks about this, this careless speech or this don't let corrupt communication come him out, it goes way beyond cussing. And maybe, because most people kind of have a handle on that kind of thing, this is really more about what he's talking about. And so you may say, I don't take everything the Bible says seriously, or I don't agree with everything in the Bible, or well, I don't want to take things too far, or... The phrase I hate the most is when people say, well, the Bible is good as far as it goes. But there's some things that the Bible just doesn't touch on. That's just a statement of just unbelievable ignorance. Or, as I mentioned this morning, that sometimes we find ourselves in, in, in truly a very difficult position where we may have a circle of friends and some of them are non-believers and one of them dies. And I said that one of them is very a very good person. Relatively speaking, they're very good. And... You don't want to be the one who's the Christian who says, well, I, I don't think we can say poor Jim, who we buried Thursday, isn't in heaven. Because he's a good guy. Now, that's careless, corrupting speech. It takes a lot of wisdom to know what to say. But that's why sometimes maybe we shouldn't say anything. Sometimes silence is good. Maybe you can talk to each one of those people in your group later. And just, you, now have, you already have a platform. You take your friend up for coffee next day and you say, remember yesterday we were talking about such and such? We were talking about Jim? I've been thinking a lot about that. Because Jim was such a good guy. But there's this tension because I, I know what the Bible says. And you tell him. It gives you that opportunity. So even if, you, even if you're the kind of individual that sometimes clams up in situations like that because you're, you're just unsure of yourself, maybe you're unsure how to say it, just relax. Take a deep breath. Just ask God to give you wisdom. And you may not have to say anything at that moment. But don't just push it to the side. Use it later. It's, it's a great 
thing to be able to do that with individuals one-on-one and and use that as your launching uh, point uh, because it took place. And that is one of those in our culture um, that we need to, I think, at times really jump on um, because we can't save the individual who's already dead, but we can definitely talk to the individual um, that is alive. And, 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 and then he may say, he may ask that hard question, so are you telling me that Jim's in heaven? I mean, that Jim's in hell? This is where you have to be smart, but you can do it, and you don't have to compromise. You can say, you can, I said his name is Paul. You say, Paul, let me tell you this. I know Jim was a good guy, but I also know this, that God has said there's only one way to heaven. And I also know that God has said that when people die, no one has an excuse. I know there have been those people who have, in the last moments, come to Christ. I don't know of Jim coming to Christ. And I'm thankful that I'm not his judge. But there's nothing we can do for Jim now. But you still have to answer the question for yourself. And you can come right back to it. You don't have to stand there and say, well, I think Jim's in hell. He's burning and he's screaming out right now. That's, I don't, that may be true, but that's not, that's not the way you communicate. Because then that, now from now, that's all they're going to think about. So we, we don't have, we don't, you never want to compromise the truth. That you never want to do. You never want to compromise. But the Bible, Jesus told us to be, has told us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And that doesn't mean that we're deceitful. But we want to get to the most important point. Because even them asking that question may not be honest on their part in the sense that they're feeling cornered and they want to get out of it. And so they want to shift the conversation from them back to Jim. And what you're going to do is answer and shift the conversation back to them. And that's, that's what we want to do. So again, for us to say things like, oh, I don't think we can really say that Jim's not in heaven uh, or something like that. Ugh. Or, and, or it may be this. Uh, I'm not sure I go along with the preacher that you have to believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection to be a Christian. And the list goes on. I'm not saying that so that I can emphasize that if you lack uh, agreement with the preacher, which would be me, um, that there's a problem. The issue is, what does the word of God say? But again, those things are careless. Let me, let me uh, I came across this story. I was kind of familiar with the story, uh, only in a very vague way. Uh, but I do think that it's uh, uh, very good at illustrating the power uh, of words and what he can do. And it goes this way. In 1980, Lee Atwater, a political campaign manager, inflicted terrible pains with his words. His staff learned that an opposing congressional candidate from South Carolina had once experienced severe depression and had undergone electric shock therapy. When Atwater released the information to the press, it humiliated the candidate and it cast doubt on his ability. In anguish, The man questioned Atwater's campaign ethics. Atwater responded by saying that he had no intention of responding to a man who who was hooked up to a jumper cable. Ten years later, Atwater was afflicted with an incurable brain tumor. He was confined to bed, attached to machines and tubes and wires. Before he died, he wrote to that candidate a letter And he asked to be forgiven because he saw very clearly how cruel and heartless his words had been. And the thing that too often happens is this. For too many people, they wait until they're about to die 
to seek forgiveness for wrongs that they have carried around their entire life. Maybe in some of those occasions, the wrongs they have done have gnawed away at their conscience or even their very soul. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there someone from whom we need to seek forgiveness? Or is there someone to whom we need to grant forgiveness, where we need to cancel their debt because, uh, and release them from maybe the unyielding resentment uh, they have of bitterness and feelings that they have bottled up inside them, or maybe that you have bottled up inside of yourself. And maybe this has been going on for days or months or maybe even years. So when you think about these things, if the Spirit of God prompts you and you remember something, don't put that off, whatever that is. Because sometimes, maybe often, what's more powerful than the things that we said to others that hurt them is living in obedience to Christ and asking them to forgive you because you recognize the wrong that you've done. Because we do live in a society where nobody wants to admit wrongdoing. That by itself will make you stand out. And then when you let them know that you take it seriously because of Christ, as well as your love for them, oftentimes the Lord will use that in a very tremendous way in their life. Maybe not at that moment, but we don't even do it so that we can see God do something in life at that moment. We do it because it's right and because, and because it honors the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this evening. I thank you, Lord, for the words that Paul and Christ have spoken about issues that we oftentimes have found ourselves on the wrong end, where we have said things that were in poor taste or hurtful, maybe even blasphemous at times. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who forgives and forgives over and over again. We pray that we would never take your forgiveness for granted or lightly. But I also pray that as a result of your forgiveness of us, that, Father, we would take the commands that have been given to us by Paul and by Christ, and we would seek to live them out, and that we would seek forgiveness from those that we have offended, even if they may not recall or even if they downplay the situation. We pray you help us to do what's right. And then, Father, also there may be those who have sinned against us that we have allowed whatever it is that they have said to live on in our hearts and minds, and they have caused us to become indeed bitter, which, again, oftentimes can be even felt or seen in our speech. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to forgive others because, Father, you have clearly forgiven us of so much more. And, Father, I ask that you would use these situations, that you would give to us insight so that we may use the mouth you've given us in a way that will always honor you and it would be profitable for those that we speak to. Father, we need your help the most, it seems, in this area because, as the word says, Though man can tame every wild beast in the animal kingdom, he's unable to tame his own tongue. And Father, we we know that to be so true. So we ask for your help. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.